Father, we begin a new series this week in your word in the book of Ephesians, and it's a jam-packed passage, complicated. Um, I just ask you that as I try my best to explain what it is you are saying from this, from this passage, that you would be gracious and kind beyond measures of my own ability to help your people, to love your people, to shepherd your people closer to you. Uh, we're completely dependent upon your spirit to make these eternal truths in your word clear and loud in the hearts of those who are here. You've brought them here today. May you speak to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, friends, we are continuing, um, or we're starting, rather, a different sermon series. We ended our sermon series through the book of Genesis last Sunday, and this Sunday, we're going to be doing a new sermon series through the book of Ephesians, okay? And as usual, we're going to go from the first verse of the book in order to the last verse of the book. Um, But since this is the first sermon series um, of the series, I do want to talk a little bit about the historical context behind why this book was written, who wrote it, and all that kind of stuff, because unless we understand the general context of that, we're going to completely misunderstand what this passage and what the book's about, okay? So just in a nutshell, uh, the book of Ephesians that you see in your Bibles, that was originally a letter that the apostle wrote to a cluster of churches in this area called Ephesus, okay? You see that in verse 1 right away. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, who's Paul? Well, he's one of the people in the New Testament, as we've all seen, that God used to preach the gospel and to plant churches in all different kinds of places all over the place, right? And if you remember in our sermon series through the book of Acts, we saw Paul plant a bunch of churches in this area called Ephesus, right? And then after that, if you also remember in our sermon series, the book of Romans, we saw this Paul that after planting all these churches, he was ministering elsewhere, and then he got thrown into prison for sharing the gospel and planting churches, right? That was the end of Romans. And this letter of Ephesians is a letter that Paul actually wrote to the church in Ephesus from prison, okay? This is one of the prison epistles, because it's been seven years now, about seven years since Paul last saw them due to house arrests and different reasons. And in this period of time of seven years, these churches in Ephesus, they're being heavily persecuted by everyone around them, okay? And they started feeling really, really defeated. They started to kind of lose steam. And a lot of the Christians here ended up leaving the faith back to their old ways of life. So Paul writes them a letter from prison, encouraging them to keep going, Don't give up. Endure through the tough times. But how does he help them endure? How does he keep them going? He doesn't do it by whipping them into shape. You know, Paul didn't say, shame on you, Ephesians, for quitting. That's weak sauce. Keep going, you know. Go hard. That's not what he did. He, as we'll see in our opening section of the letter today, he chose to begin this letter of encouragement instead with a whip he chose to start with a full-blown gospel presentation. He believed that instead of a whip, a full-blown gospel presentation is what's going to help discourage Christians endure, keep going, even when times are hard, okay? How does it do that? Well, 
Let's get into it. This is God's Word, taken from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 14, the opening section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Thus says the Lord, perhaps one of the most jam-packed passages I've had to preach, and I'll by no means do it justice in 30 minutes, but let's try our best to really try and get what God's trying to do here, okay? There are at least three major things here that we see about the gospel that'll give discouraged Christians the kind of peace, motivation, and security to keep running well when things get hard, all right? What are they? Well, first, we see here the whole scope of the gospel from beginning to end, which is our peace. Second, we see the whole effect of the gospel from sinner to worshiper, which is our motivation. And third, we see the whole scheme of the gospel from plan to fulfillment, which is our security. I know those are long. Don't worry about getting them all now. But as we go uh, through the sermon, they'll be back up on the screen again. Okay? Let's just... Start at the first point. We see here in the opening of Ephesians, Paul giving these Ephesian Christians the, f- the full scope of the gospel from beginning to end. And this will give you peace. Okay. Before I get into it, let me just start with this. If you're trying to run a, a short sprint, a fast sprint, you don't need much peace. You know what you need? You need grit. You need to tense up your muscles. You need to go all out and just get it over with, right? Those are short sprints. But if you're trying to run a marathon, on the other hand, it's, it's completely different. You do need a measure of peace to be able to endure to the end. Why? Because as all of you know, with mar- marathons, it's not just about running faster. With marathons, you need to have the space to talk to yourself, to pace yourself, to tell yourself to slow down when you're going too fast, not to panic when things get hard, 
to give yourself perspective mid-race, to think through all the twists and turns that come with a long marathon. Grit will get you through short sprints, but peace helps you endure marathons. And the Christian walk in the Bible is described less like a short sprint and more like a marathon. You need a measure of peace to keep going. And Paul here is trying to give these Ephesian Christians this peace that they need in order to keep going. But in order to do that, Paul had to give them a gospel presentation that's much more than just the one we've often boiled it down to, which is Jesus Christ died for your sins. We've, when we hear the gospel, that's what we often think about. Jesus Christ died for your sins, and that's it. Now, is that a part of the gospel? Of course it is. It definitely includes that. But if, if that's all the gospel is to you, just that one statement, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, you will not have this marathon-level peace that Paul is trying to, trying to give you here to make you survive long-term. Why not? Because just that one sentence, Jesus Christ died for your sins, still have a lot of uncertainty surrounding it. Let's give it a think. Okay, Jesus Christ died for your sins. But how long are my sins cleansed for? A day? A week? A year? A decade? What if Roman soldiers pressure me? Some of these Ephesians, Christians must have thought. What if Roman soldiers come to my house, come to my church, and I cave in? I give up. I leave the church. You know, what about then? Which many of them did that, by the way. What happens then? Or what if, in order to get a job in Ephesus, which is what happened back then, I have to deny Christ and instead, instead worship Artemis, the god back then, like my boss told me to, or worship this deified Emperor Augustus, which happened back then. He was made into a god. And a lot of Christians didn't get jobs back then because they were worshiping Christ. What if a Christian back then leaves the church because of that? Many of these Ephesian Christians caved in. These past seven years, they're being persecuted. They gave up. They left the church, and they're asking that question. Is there still hope for me if I leave the church? Is, does God still love me? Should I keep going? Is he done with me? I don't know. Should I just quit? Paul writes a letter and tells them, grace and peace be with you. Calm down. The gospel is way bigger than just that one sentence. First of all, Paul says here, as we read, once you're forgiven, you're forgiven forever. It lasts more than a decade, or however long it is you think. Where does he say that? Skip with, with me to verse 13 in, in the passage. Read verse 13 to 14. Paul says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What's he saying there? He's saying that when you believe Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are locked and sealed. With what? With the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That's pretty, that's pretty sure there. The guarantee of your future inheritance, referring to what? Heaven. Paul's saying here, when Jesus pays for your sins, he pays for it all. Past, present, future. 
And notice, Paul gives no clauses here. He doesn't say, in Christ, you're sealed with this Holy Spirit that guarantees your salvation until you stop going to church, until you shy away from telling people you're actually a Christian, until you stop reading your Bible, until you stop praying. No clauses. He said, when you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are sealed and guaranteed to reach the shores of heaven. And I completely get how this statement could make some of us nervous hearing it, right? Because some of us may use that sentence as a license to sin, right? Some of us think, well, if I'm forgiven forever, why not just do what I want? And that's a legitimate concern, which we will address later. But for now, I just want to ask us, I want to ask you all to sit with me through this nerve-wrecking amount of grace. It's so huge, it makes people nervous. Paul said that if you truly accept that Jesus Christ as the only Savior, that's when you accept the Christ, that no matter what happens, no matter what you do, no matter how often you let go of Him, He will never let go of you. And the reason why he'll never let go of you, here's the logic, okay? Stick with me. The reason why he'll never let go of you, the reason why God's love will, ne- will last forever is because technically, Paul continues to say, it never began. What? Okay. Go to verse 4. What does Paul say there? Paul said that he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. When did God choose us to be with Him? Before the foundations of the world. And just in case this eternal logic is confusing to our finite minds, Paul summarizes everything in one sentence. This will help you. Go to verse 11. He said this. Here's a summary, okay? In Him, when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, in Him, we have obtained an inheritance, meaning to eternity future, having been because we have been predestined, meaning from eternity past. Stick with me just one more stretch. This question may help us get our minds around this. Let me ask you, based on what we just saw Paul say, which sentence sounds more true to you? First sentence, God started loving you eternally when you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Or, second sentence, because God already loved you eternally, you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Based on what we just read, which one sounds truer? The second one. Because God's already loved you eternally, you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior did not make God love you eternally. You accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because God already loved you eternally. This logic is based upon a being who exists beyond time. You're talking about being loved by a being who's not bound with concepts like a beginning or an end. Those things don't apply to him. A theologian once summarized it so well. He said this, the reason why God will never stop loving you 
is because technically he never began. (laughs) Think about that. The reason why God will never stop loving you is because technically he never began. Do you see how this holistic scope of the gospel will give you so much more peace than just that one sentence, Jesus Christ died for your sins? You see that? Do you see how, if this is your good news, if this is your gospel, when you struggle to follow Christ, like many of the Ephesians did here, when we fall back into our old sins, when you give in to certain pressures around you, when you haven't gone to church forever and it's starting to feel like a long distant memory, when your Bible is collecting dust on your bookshelf, and you're thinking to yourself, it's over. It's been long over. (laughs) Should I come back? I don't know. Does God even love me anymore? It's been way too long. You know what? I'll just be done with it. Paul here is saying, have peace, take a deep breath, don't throw in the towel quite just yet, come back. But I've abandoned him for so long. Yeah, you did. But he never abandoned you. Have peace, come back, keep going. Peace helps you run the long run. But peace alone isn't enough, Paul continues. For these Ephesian Christians to keep running, they need something more than just just peace. They also need motivation, which leads us to our second point. The whole effect of the gospel from sinner to worshiper, which is our motivation. Okay. So earlier, we mentioned this danger, this concern that might arise if we talk about this grand eternal scope of God's love, right? A lot of us may end up abusing it. A lot of us may end up thinking it's an it's a out-of-jail-free card to sin, right? If I'm safe forever, Yoda, I'll just sin. I'll just do whatever. But if that's the case, if you're using this grand scale of the gospel to sin, Paul tells us here that that means you probably haven't really understood the whole effect of the gospel, okay? Go to verse 5. What does Paul say is the end goal of the gospel? What does Paul say is the desired final effect of the gospel? Verse 4 to 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he he predestined us for what? For the adoption to himself as sons. That's the end goal. I remember a while back, I was in seminary, one of my professors shocked the whole class by opening up the class with saying, Jesus did not die for your sins. It was like a 7 a.m. class too. We were like, wait, what? (laughs) And after waking us all up, he then continued, Jesus didn't die for your sins. Jesus died to make you a child of God. His point there is kind of like Paul's here. The forgiveness of sins isn't the end goal. God did not predestine us, Paul says in verse 5, to be forgiven of our sins. God predestined us to be adopted as sons. If a homeless child who stole food was put on trial and a man comes in to pay for his mistakes but then lets his kid back out on the streets again to fend for himself, is that good news? 
No. In the Bible, whenever God frees his people, the freedom is never aimless. Remember what God said to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 8? He said, let my people go. Why? To aimlessly roam in the desert? No. Let my people go so that they may worship me, so that they may have a relationship with me. Friends, the gospel is so much more than just Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins because he didn't just die on the cross for your sins. He died on the cross to make worshipers of you and me. That's the good news. If you've been adopted as God's child, that means you've been eternally loved by God, Paul says. And that means your trespasses have been paid for by Christ, verse 7. And that means you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, verse 13. And that means you're guaranteed an eternal salvation, verse 14. That's the full scope of the gospel. And what does all of that accumulate to at the end? What is the very last goal of all this? Go to the very last phrase in our very last verse in verse 14. Here's the end goal. The praise of his glory. That's the full scope of the gospel, and that is the full effect of the gospel. Not that you've been forgiven of your sins, but that you'll become a worshiper of God. And if the opportunity to become a worshiper of God doesn't sound like good news to you, then maybe the gospel hasn't become good news for you. Even if you're Katepe says Christian, even if you said I do to the CCC vows, is worshiping him good news? Now, how does worship help these Ephesian Christians to run the race well? Well, because that's the motivation to keep going. James Smith, a professor and Christian author, in his book, You Are What You Love, I might have quoted this before, he quoted an old quote, he didn't write it, somebody else did, that I thought was very interesting. And the quote goes like this. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men and give them orders to gather up wood, but instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. If you want to make a ship, tell people to yearn for the vast and endless sea. What he's saying there is this. He's saying that if you're internally motivated to do something, if you love something, if you worship something, you're going to run toward it with or without the whip. If you love and worship the vast and open sea, you'll find a way to make a boat, even when it's hard. And guess what? If you love and worship God, you'll find a way to follow him with or without the whip. You don't need me or anyone else beating up a drum to make you run. You see, it's the motivation. If the peace that comes from the whole scope of the gospel helps you stay the course, first point, the worship that you get from experiencing the whole effect of the gospel will give you the motivation to keep going. And Paul had this. You know, usually people write letters of encouragement for those who are in prison. Paul here was in prison writing letters of encouragement for those who are outside of prison. He was going, it's okay, guys. <laughs> you got this. Keep going. Keep going. Run the race. Don't quit. 
This guy's unbreakable. It should be reversed. Why did he have such endurance? Why did he keep going, even in prison? Because he had peace and he had drive. The whole scope of the gospel made him experience the whole effect of the gospel. And we need this. But there's one more thing Paul had that helped him run the race well. Not only did he have the peace that comes from knowing the whole scope of the gospel, point one, not only did he have the motivation that comes from experiencing the full effect of the gospel, right, worship, point two. Third, he also had the security, the safety that comes from understanding the whole scheme of the gospel. Okay, let's go to our last point. From plan to fulfillment, which is our security. Take a look there at the extent of thoughtfulness God is described to have put into our salvation. It's a whole divine scheme. Look at verse 5. It says that all of this happened. Okay, you're saved. All of this happened according to what? The purpose of His will. He put purpose into it. It was His will. Then look at verse 11. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. I mean, it seems like He really planned this thing out, didn't He? God's purpose, God's work, God's counsel, God's will were all involved in your salvation event. See, if you ask me to plan an event and I say, I got you, don't worry, I will deploy the full might of my counsel and will to come up with a plan, you should feel thoroughly afraid because I'm terrible at event planning and the full counsel of my will and purpose won't do you much good in this situation. But when God says, I've deployed the full might of my counsel and will to purpose and work your salvation story from beginning to end. You know what you should feel? Safe. Secure. Because God's claiming here that every part of your story, Christian, was meticulously crafted by an eternally wise being to ensure that one day you will safely arrive at the shores of his kingdom. Locked and sealed. You know how Paul stayed steady in prison? It's because when he looked around those gray walls, when he felt the cold chains upon his feet, and when he looked at that plate of food they call lunch, he knew that yes, even this chapter of his life was written by an eternally wise God who's loved him and whose love has no beginning or end. So he looked prison in the eye and he kept going. Do you have that kind of sturdiness, that kind of peace? And he writes a letter and tells the Ephesians who are also going through a hard time to keep going to not judge a story when you're only midway in the book. Every chapter is written by him. This, this peace that the whole gospel gives you will help you stay the course. The motivation to endure you will have by the full effect of the gospel as you worship, and you also have the security to patiently wait till the end because the gospel says that the ending will be glorious. 
no matter what this chapter feels like. Is your gospel that big? Is the good news of Christianity that big to you? Or is it limited merely to the sentence, Jesus Christ died for your sins? Now, as we come to an end, I do want to be really careful here, okay? Because I don't want to sound like I'm minimizing the sentence, Jesus Christ died for your sins, okay? Not at all. Because yes, although Paul does say here that the gospel scope is way more than just that one sentence, there is also an emphasis on Christ in this passage that, that we can't deny. If you read the passage again closely, you might have sensed this. There's a phrase that Paul repeated six times in the passage, way more than any other phrase um, in, in the passage, and it's the phrase, in Him. We were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. In Him we have redemption and are forgiven of your trespasses. In Him we've obtained an inheritance. In Him you were sealed to acquire that possession at the end. Who's the Him here? Jesus. So, although, yes, the gospel goes beyond the one sentence, Jesus Christ died for your sins, at the same time, it does all hinge upon that one sentence. The success of the whole thing relies on the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins. It depends on Him. See, let's, let's summarize everything here with that. First, the Father couldn't have loved sinners like you and I eternally with this great eternal love unless someone pays for our sins. A perfect judge can't ignore trespasses. The only reason why God can shower us with this eternal love that we saw here and talked about in point one is because Christ paid for the price of your trespass. He died for your sins. And the only way you'll sacrificially follow and worship God without someone beating the drum next to your ear internally because you want to Point two, that worship, that sacrificial following highly depends on whether or not you understand that this God first sacrificed himself for you on that cross. You're never going to view God as beautiful until you see that to be true. He's always going to be this distant tyrant giving you rules, and if you follow him, you get to heaven. That is not the gospel. The gospel doesn't say obey and then be accepted. The gospel says you are first accepted. That's why you obey. He will never be beautiful to you. And lastly, the only way you can be sure that he will turn around even the worst chapters in your life to a glorious end, how do you know that's going to be sure? Point three. It's when you see him turn the cross around when you see him turn the worst chapter of his life around into a glorious end, which he did. Even the worst chapter of Jesus' life was used for a kind of glory that we wouldn't have tasted unless he endured through it. So yes, the gospel is much more than just that one sentence, Jesus Christ died for your sins. But you lose that sentence, you lose everything. So if you're here today and you have received the gospel, you've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you've been a Christian, okay, my hope here is that Paul's full-scope gospel presentation will expand your view of the gospel, will make you see it in a bigger way, and be encouraged because 
what Paul's telling you here that if you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that means God has had you in his mind eternally. He's always wanted you from before time began, not because of any holiness or blamelessness in your part, not because you're better than anyone else, but because in the richness of his grace and according to the counsel of his will, for some crazy reason, he wanted you. Don't ask me why. Don't ask me why he wants me. I don't know. That's the whole point of the gospel. But he gets what he wants. And if you're here today and you haven't received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you're here today, you're still exploring Christianity, you're not quite sure that you can rest in this good news, this passage is telling you that for some reason, he has written today into your story. For some reason, before eternity passed, according to the great mercy and counsel of his will, he wanted you to sit here today on the 14th floor of this building and hear a gospel presentation for 35 minutes. Will it result in anything? Might you receive it? Might it be one of the gospel presentations you hear until you receive it? Or maybe you never will. I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Me beating the drum won't lead you to him. So I'll stop and I'll pray that the Holy Spirit gives you the ears to hear the eternal plan of the Father that was accomplished on the cross by the Son in hope that today may be the day this eternal love story becomes yours as well. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for putting an eternal being into finite categories. How can we imagine a being that exists beyond the concept of time, who's not limited by concepts like beginnings or ends. It's hard. And as you challenged our minds and our hearts today to rise up to the heights of heaven, it hurt our brains, which it should. But that's a taste of who you are. May you, Father, send your spirit May you lock and seal people here as you open up their ears to hear this great gospel you're offering them. May you claim people for yourself. May you give them the full scope. May you help them experience the fullest effect. And may you help them understand the full uh, scheme behind this redemptive plan. And may this whole gospel launch them to become worshipers of you, come high or low tides, that they will endure and keep running the race till they see you face to face 
and hear you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. On that day when we see you, may you crown your own work and may we not claim any ounce of the glory for it is by mercy, through mercy, till mercy, you get what you want. And thank you, Father, for wanting us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.